0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Uh, One side trip before we get started this morning. So join me in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, I'm just going to spotlight a couple of verses. You probably already know them. And then uh, we'll return to uh, Acts chapter 21. God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, humbling our hearts under the authority of doctrine, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, unworthy and yet made worthy. I thank you for your son. I thank you for his righteousness that's imputed to our account. I thank you that we can boldly approach and you command us to do so. So here we are, Father. We present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we call upon your faithfulness to uh, rightly divide that word this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, John chapter 20 and verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. All right. And so if you think I'm picking on Luke too much for his omissions, uh, I, I should start picking on John maybe for his omissions. All right. Now, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just observing and omissions are not a problem. Omissions are a good thing. Because the things that are omitted are not designed by the Holy Spirit to be recorded in a particular text. And so for the Gospel of John, there are a lot of things omitted. John is uh, like 80% unique and, and, and uh, unrelated to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. You've got a, a lot of unique material in the Gospel of John, and that's okay. We don't mind those omissions. It goes on to say in verse 31 of John 20, but these have been written so that... You, that is the reader of the Gospel of John, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, in believing, you may have life in his name. And so we have the purpose clause for the Gospel of John, a very powerful uh, gospel. In fact, we're told specifically that the Gospel of John is evangelistic, that an unbeliever can read the Gospel of John and understand who the Christ is and place their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Uh, next chapter, chapter 21, and at the end, uh, verse 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so that's a pretty extraordinary statement as well. And uh, there it is. So a lot of omissions by all the gospel writers, a lot of omissions in uh, in every uh, text. And uh, And so we have it. All right. So, returning now to uh, Acts 20 and 21, as we seal, as we see the uh, the conclusion to the third missionary journey, and return to where uh, we had picked up uh, on Wednesday. We're looking at example number ten. Example number ten in uh, our outline. And each, you understand each example has several examples within it as far as illustrations of Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions. But example number 10, we're centering now on the journey from Philippi to uh, Jerusalem. And we, it's usually included as a part of the third missionary journey. I uh, shared with you uh, on Wednesday that I prefer to not think of the uh, opening leg and the closing leg as a part of that third missionary journey. And so as we have it, and I forgot about maybe getting a new battery for this, but it looks like it rested up over the weekend. Uh, this leg here, I don't include that as a part of the third missionary journey. I include that simply as relocating the headquarters from Antioch to Ephesus and then establishing a base of operations, establishing what the what the army calls a logistical base, All right, a log base. And, and he's relocating from log base Antioch to log base Ephesus, and Ephesus then becomes a training center. And we see a plurality of teachers, and we see uh, believers being trained in their giftedness, and we see letters that are being dispatched, including a sorrowful letter to uh, to Corinth. And we see teams that are going out, including whoever it was that took the gospel to uh, to Colossae and, and established the Bible Church in Colossae. See, and if that was Epaphras or, or whoever else that might have been. We'll see and we'll study when we do the background on on Colossians. Um, likewise, this leg we're looking at this morning is the the sailing from Miletus to Jerusalem, that's usually thought of as part of the third missionary journey as well. Uh, I I prefer not to think of it as such because I think that the missionary journey began and ended at Ephesus and uh, included this this, uh, circle here and then the circle back. And like every other missionary journey, it is launched from a, a location, it concludes at that same location as the report is given to the assembly that sponsored that missionary journey. In this case, Ephesus, Uh, is is reported back to it so um, we see in acts chapter 20 then the conclusion to the third missionary journey when uh, paul gives the report to the elders he won't travel to ephesus however he stops at miletus which you see on the coast there and uh, in chapter 20 in verse 17 uh, from miletus he sent to ephesus and called to him the elders of the church and so they come to him and he gives the report there in Miletus, and that's really the, the remainder of chapter 20 is the content of that report, including the expectation of more conflict and uh, the uh, the applications there. So um, we dealt with most of that on Wednesday, and I don't want to repeat that here this morning. But now this journey from Philippi to Jerusalem, uh, where we're tracking the number of times Paul has visited Philippi that that is recorded in in the book of Acts. This is now the third recorded visit to Philippi, and uh, admitting of course that there may have been others that were omitted because Luke's omitting an awful lot. All right, there may have been others as well, particularly during the three years that he spent in Ephesus. It would have been quite easy to get on a boat, sail to you know it's just a week away. You can be in Philippi and visit for a while and then come back. Uh, you could do a short trip. Uh, We know that he had a short trip to to Corinth and back during his three years in Ephesus. And so it's conceivable that he had an additional trip that's not recorded. But the ones that are recorded in Acts 16 and in uh, Acts chapter 20, Uh, we have uh, one, two, and three recorded visits to Philippi. Why am I paying attention to that? Because I think there's clues in the book of Philippians. I think there are inferences throughout the book of Philippians that when he writes the book to the Philippians, that he has only been there once, that uh, he's looking forward to coming back, and when he comes back a second time, that that is only the second time that he has ever been there. And, and Paul's going to reflect upon the, the finances that they've blessed him with. That they were able to support him in Thessalonica. They were able to support him in his ongoing travels after that first time that he left Macedonia. And uh, that there was a season when they couldn't support him until very recently. And just immediately prior to the writing of, of Philippians, they were able at last to uh, revive their concern for him they were able at last to provide a a financial gift all right and so in the context there uh, of when philippi had money and when philippi uh, was was uh, a little thin shall we say (laughs) all right uh, these become then huge indicators for the writing of of uh, philippians all right because particularly when we realize having already studied second corinthians eight and nine that Philippians, uh, the the Philippian believers, were the driving force betwi- behind that monster fund that they that they put together for Jerusalem. All right, they put together an extraordinary fund. Remember, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave, and uh, and that, that that great wealth that uh, Paul writes about in Second Corinthians eight and nine, and that those two chapters there that that teach us such a, a powerful doctrine of grace giving. All of that was driven primarily by Philippi, by the Macedonian churches with Philippi at the head. And so um, I think as we work our way through here, and we we discussed this um, last Sunday and then again a little bit more Wednesday night. When you look at Acts 20 and verse 2, you talk about a brief sketch. There's, There's so much that needs to go into that all it says is he had gone through those districts right verse one says he left to go to macedonia and verse two said when he had gone through those districts and given them much exhortation he came to greece there is just practically no detail there whatsoever until we we pull in these additional details from second corinthians and from romans all right and we realize that this this fund and uh, and all this abundant, uh, the abundant finances that were given are going to uh, going to Jerusalem. And that that becomes significant. So we have to identify that for what it is when we go through the book of Philippians and ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, when was that drought when the Philippians were thin in their budget and could no longer support even Paul, let alone Jerusalem. Right. And so we, we put these things together and it's going to become, I think, a, a, very much a blessing for us as we uh, see it for what it is there in the book of philippians all right uh, we also have a team that's mentioned don't uh, lose sight of these men seven men that are named in uh, in chapter 20 and verse 4 he was accompanied by sopater or sometimes it's spelled sosipater sopater of berea the son of pyrrhus and by aristarchus and secundus of uh, the thessalonians gaius of Derby, and timothy and uh, tychicus and trophimus of asia and it's slightly awkward why Timothy is kind of plugged in there where he's plugged in there, but it makes sense when he realize that Paul is, is listing these men by their geographic origin. And uh, since Gaius is of Derby, that's appropriate to just kind of stick Timothy in there at that point. Um, Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And so the us then is the return of Luke. To the party right we, we were paying attention to the we portions in the book of Acts and uh, we've been missing Luke now since chapter 16 uh, we have not had a we or an us or a first person plural since uh, they departed from Philippi and back in Acts chapter 16 so uh, we have the return of Luke to the party here and uh, the uh, the other information now, it is, we have to leave this as an open question because we can't prove how many of the seven companions that are named remained all the way to Jerusalem and how many dropped off at different places. How many were dropped off at Troas or at Assos or at Miletus or at um, uh, Militin, I think is the other town. Um, how many were, how many, uh, were sent back to, uh, to Ephesus and stayed in Asia when Paul sailed to Jerusalem. In fact, as we read through the rest of the book of acts we don't find most of these names ever again uh, we do find one mention of trophimus in uh, in jerusalem and we find one mention of aristarchus when paul is loaded on a boat and shipped off to caesar all right so i think we can and, and we have some us verses and some we verses uh for part of it and so uh, clearly luke and aristarchus and 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 uh, Trophimus were in Jerusalem or, or thereabouts, we don't know about the rest of them. And, and we've got to be content with that. We've got to allow for that kind of thing to take place. But uh, as you look through in Acts 21, Trophimus is the only name that you're going to see there in Jerusalem, part of the uproar that comes out. Uh, let me glance at it here. In, in, in 21-29 is uh, when this riot is is being stirred up uh back up slightly here all right you'll notice um in in verse 27 when the seven days were almost over the jews from asia upon seeing him in the temple see jews from asia they know paul by sight they know paul's companions by sight that ministry in asia was famous and uh, the word had spread to everybody throughout the province and and the jews were not liking that and so here they see Paul in, uh, in, in Jerusalem, and they're going to they're gonna stir it up. This is what they do. So crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man. <laughs> this is him, all right? I've been telling you about him. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now that's not true, but don't let the truth uh, keep you know diminish the enthusiasm for a good mob, right? And we've been seeing it in our country in the last week or so. Uh, truth is one thing, but that doesn't stop people from whipping up crowds and and being all mad at stuff that they think is true. And so, uh, notice in verse twenty-nine, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and so they just assume. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Well, I mean, if he's in Jerusalem and he's with Paul and Paul went into the temple, well, you know, he must have taken that Gentile in there with him. And so there you have it. And that's enough to get them all excited and hot and bothered and and uh, and all of that. Anyway, so uh, all the city was provoked in verse 30. and The people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. and uh, tried to kill him as we see there in verse 31 while they were seeking to kill him a report came up to to the commander of the cohort that all jerusalem was in confusion now you might recall that was the issue that ended the the situation in ephesus you remember the city clerk came out and said what are we doing right you keep stirring up the mob rome will not be happy We've got to stop this now or the legions are coming and, and they'll put it down. And this is what happens here. The Romans hear about it. There's those pesky Jews again, right? They're stirring up trouble in Jerusalem. So um, now as we work our way through, and, and not trying to read the entire chapter this morning, but as we work our way through here in Acts 21, is is Trophimus the only guy there is Timothy there is Sosipater there is Aristarchus there is all the rest of that crowd that was named back in chapter 20 in verse 3 they were with Paul at the start of the journey but they're never named again not for the rest of the book of Acts we never see Timothy again in the book of Acts and so where does he drop off or does he drop off is he there and just not mentioned see all of these are questions that have to be considered and may not have a resolution because the only name we have here is Trophimus. Now, uh, as far as the other details go in chapter 21, I think we can um, pass over. There's a lot of material here in particular. Even on that journey, even on that journey on the way, there's, there's people trying to keep Paul from going. The prophet Agabus shows up and tells Paul, don't go. And uh, Philip the evangelist. And Philip's got four virgin daughters that are prophetesses. And they say, don't go. (laughs) And Paul keeps saying, I got to go, I got to go. And so you have a disagreement among believers. And there's a lot there that I think we can learn from. And my favorite, maybe my favorite verse in all of this is, uh, is verse 14 of Acts 21. You know, sometimes believers just, they get their minds made up and what do you do? And verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. <laughs> All right. And so who's right, who's wrong, and who cares? I think there's a, there's a, there's a sermon there, okay? Um, is the, the Holy Spirit is, is leading Paul, or he says he is. Paul testified, the Holy Spirit is driving me so is Paul lying? Is he wrong? Is he misguided? Is it not the Holy Spirit guiding him? And then Agabus speaks by the Spirit. Four prophetesses, the virgin daughters of, of Philip, are speaking by the Spirit. So what is it? Is, is the Holy Spirit a spirit of confusion? Why, is he, why does this happen? All right. And again, uh, different pastors have different viewpoints on this. I think Paul was wrong. But at a certain point, if you're blinded by patriotism or you're blinded by uh, your affections, he dearly loved the Jewish people, uh, he dearly wanted to be in, in Jerusalem for Passover, um, or whatever the case may be, if you're blinded by emotions, then you may, you may see what you want to see, you may hear what you want to hear, you may feel what you want to feel, and you may be convinced in your own mind that, oh boy, the Holy Spirit is, is, has just laid it on my heart. Okay. Yeah. Maybe so. And here's the thing. It's so subjective that you cannot convince the person otherwise. All right. And even if they are right or even if they are wrong, you're not going to. So I think this verse, the will of the Lord be done. You said what you wanted to say. That's it. Okay. He said his conviction. I said my conviction. We're going to let it go. And uh, the will of the Lord be done. And I think that's a great pattern for us. And here's something else. The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion, but he very well may give opposing guidance to different believers for the, just this reason, to teach us how to rely upon him and not trust in other people and uh, to work out our differences when they, when they arise. That may very much be a part of, of the Holy Spirit's work in that. So maybe nobody's wrong in this. Maybe they're both right. The Holy Spirit told Paul to go and the Holy Spirit told Agabus to tell him not to go. And that's not a confusion issue, that is a test of their faith and uh, to, to, see, to bring them to this verse 14 moment. All right. Now we can read through Paul's five defenses, chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. And if that seems redundant, I agree. <laughs> All right, it is redundant, but it's fascinating to watch how the Holy Spirit records it. How many times does Paul tell that story of the Damascus Road? Again and again and again and again, right? And and you and I get bored with it. And we say, come on, we read this already, right? We read it back in chapter 9, why am I reading it again? But it's curious to me, the little details that pop up each time he retells it that weren't recorded back in chapter 9. And you kind of think, well, why was that left out? All right, And little glimpses here and little glimpses there and other things each time he retells it different aspects get stressed and that's fine that's normal we should uh, not worry about that but as he makes those defenses there are no named companions also it's very much third person there's very little we Uh, and so we're left to wonder well where did luke go during that time And so uh, we'll we'll, kind of work our way through the the chapter. I'm not going to read all those chapters, but the defenses that he makes. He makes defenses to to Felix and to Festus and to Agrippa. He makes defenses to the mob. He makes defenses to the Sanhedrin. He makes these five defenses and where we have no named companions. When the we language resumes in chapter 27, they're getting on board a ship because Paul had was forced to appeal to Caesar So when the we language uh, resumes, only Aristarchus is specifically named. And so uh, flip on ahead to chapter 27, you'll see this. All right, chapter 27. When it was decided that we... Ah, makes a comeback, okay. Luke's once again back in the picture again. He disappeared for a few chapters. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy they that's the romans proceeded to deliver paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the augustinian cohort named julius all right we will get to talk about julius a little bit this morning and embarking in an 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 adramidian ship uh, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of asia we put out to sea accompanied by and here he is aristarchus a macedonian of thessalonica and so that one little passing reference to Trophimus in chapter 21, this, this passing reference now to Aristarchus in chapter 27, that's it. Those are the only two little clues that we have of those seven names from chapter 20 and verse 3. All right? And so uh, just identify it for what it is and, and content ourselves in, uh, in uh, realizing that the other people disappeared when they disappeared probably in the will of god probably at paul's direction we don't know notice though uh, he gets on the boat uh, aristarchus does but he's not mentioned again and very quickly then uh, in verse three they put in at sidon and julius treated paul with consideration allowed him to go to his friends and receive care so he gets a little shore leave there in sidon and then from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of cyprus because the winds were contrary you know, there's certain times of year you don't want to be sailing in the eastern Mediterranean. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. Now, this is a a change a, a port, and it's a change of ship, all right? And this is probably where, uh, where um, uh, Aristarchus makes a different connecting flight, <laughs> okay? You know, they shared this leg of their journey, and then Paul and Luke... Uh, get on board the next ship, which is sailing for Rome. And uh, because, see, when, when they land in Rome, finally, uh, he's not there. So where did he get off? Where did he change his ship? How did that happen? So uh, Aristarchus, I think, Aristarchus likely, uh, this port of uh, this mentioned here is probably where he got on a different ship in Myra. All right, so verse 6, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And uh, like I say, Aristarchus was left to to uh, find somewhere else. This map here kind of highlights that. I don't know if I can zoom this. Can I? Yeah, how about I can zoom that? That's pretty cool. So, um, in any event, this kind of diagrams the, uh, the situation, the orange arrow uh, from Caesarea to Sidon around to Myra, and then uh, the green arrow representing the, the, dip, the change of ship. He gets on the Alexandrian ship there, and likely at Myra, is, uh, maybe he went overland, or maybe he got on a different boat or whatever uh, Aristarchus was doing. He, uh, he leaves the journey at that point. And then, as far as we know, it's just Paul and Luke. As far as we know, it's just Paul and Luke, okay? And that's uh, the best we're going to do, I think, with that. All right, shrink that back down, and let's return. Oops, don't want to do that. There we go so um the we language resumes we talked about that so what happened to Sopater, secundus gaius timothy tychicus and trophimus between troas and jerusalem we don't know we just have to content ourselves that well they they were with paul at the start of the journey and then they just gradually went different places at different times also what happened to luke <laughs> why did the we passage disappear Why was it we, 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 we from, you know, or us, you know, the first person plural. Why was it we and us between Philippi and Jerusalem? And then why was it he, 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 they, 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 Paul? It was back to the third person again for most, for the, for the trials, for every trial, for his two years of imprisonment, for all the things that happened there. Paul's defenses spanned a two year imprisonment. So what was Luke doing during that whole time? Okay, I mean, you're traveling with somebody, and he goes to prison for two years. What do you do? <laughs> you just sit outside the jail the whole time, waiting for him to get out, or you probably, you know, you got to eat, you got to live, you got to sleep, you got to do something. I believe, and uh, it's fairly commonly assumed that uh, Luke used that time to research and write the Gospel of Luke. That it makes sense for this uh, Gentile, or if he was a Gentile, I think he was probably Jewish. Now, I <laughs> used to think he was Gentile, but he's starting to do more studies on Luke, Luke the person. But when you look at the beginning of his gospel, now join me in Luke one and three, and let's see this clue here: the Gospel of Luke, chapter one and verse three. And you'll see that he was quite a historian. Not only was he a doctor by profession, but he was a historian. And did careful research. The prologue to Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Many. And uh, besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how many more? uh, Because John hadn't been written yet when he's writing Luke. So besides Matthew and Mark, how many more? Many. Wrote uh, their memories and their... their, uh, uh, accounts of of the life of christ uh and it says just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word see luke realized he was he was that second generation he was not an eyewitness he was not an apostle he did not see the things of christ as they unfolded he was told about them later it seemed fitting for me and by the way that same testimony is in the introduction to hebrews the author of hebrews says look i'm second generation i didn't see this but it was reported to us by those who did see it similarity between luke and hebrews all right verse 3 says it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order most excellent theophilus and that title, most excellent, isn't just given to anybody. All right, that there's a there's a reason for that, and um, it's kind of like the the order that we have in our country. Who gets called your honor in our country? Who gets? What are the honorifics that are assigned to different to different uh, government offices and so forth for presidents and for uh, senators and for representatives and for judges and for governors, and uh, and so forth. There is a there is a um, there is a system in place in, uh, in our nation. There is a system in place in the Roman Empire. To have this title, Most Excellent Theophilus, is significant. Here in Luke and in the book of Acts. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Theophilus is a disciple. He's had teaching. But here he's going to have, in 1st in Theophilus and 2nd Theophilus, he's going to have the clear record that Luke provides for him. Okay, Those are my goofy names for Luke and Acts. You could think of them as 1st Theophilus and 2nd Theophilus. And, uh, and there you have it. So having investigated everything carefully, is this when he did it? When did he do that? When did Luke have the time to research and investigate and interview, talk to eyewitnesses and get a clear uh, understanding for the life of Christ? Well, this seems to be a good uh, a good occasion for that during the 2 years that Paul spends in uh in his imprisonment. Reference to those 2 years by the way comes up in Acts 24:27. Acts 24:27 After 2 years had passed, Felix was, succeed, was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So it was 2 years plus two years plus additional time uh, assigned there by Felix. So um, what did Paul do during his two years in prison? Did he write a prison epistle? And a lot of people consider that this is a lot of downtime. This is a lot of, uh, you know, um, not a lot else going on. What, what else are you going to do? Okay. And I expect Paul, I mean, I, just because I know what the ministry is like, there's uh there's books I've been trying to read and can't find time to read and I've got a stack and and when I go to ukraine um it's gonna be a good opportunity to get caught up on some books <laughs> all right, and uh, you get two weeks there and your evenings are on your own and and uh, you got opportunity to to get caught up on some reading you wouldn't be doing otherwise. so what did Paul do? Did he write a prison epistle? Is the cesarean imprisonment a good setting for philippians ephesians colossians and philemon there are four prison epistles and we know that he was in prison when he wrote them but in none of them does he tell us which prison or when or what order so did he write one did he write two three or four these are the questions we're we're exploring all right and it usually comes down to either caesarea or rome those are the two that 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 hog the majority of the arguments because those are the two dominant ones we know about in the book of Acts. There there were many others though, and I'm going to defend the Ephesian imprisonment for the writing of Philippians. Alright? And uh, that's something else that we'll be considering as well. See what some of these other maps are doing here. There we go. He had a military escort. Uh, There were some ambushes that were planned along the way, uh, but he does spend his two years in Caesarea. If you're not familiar with the geography of Israel, the geography of uh, Canaan, there it is. From Jerusalem through Antipatris and up to Caesarea. All right. Then the appeal to Caesar. Now, Before I get to that, I don't know that there's anything I really want to, we can save some time here as we look at uh, these chapters. So, um, back up to chapter 21, I know I'm bouncing around this morning, are you with me still? Chapter 21, and uh, verse 30, the city was provoked, the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. All right. Does this seem legal? (laughs) Is this uh, due process? Not at all. A lot of the dangers Paul faced beyond the legal execution at the hands of a court or as a result of a jail time uh, was just simply the mob justice. He he faced that countless times. And immediately the doors were shut. Why is that significant? Verse 31 While they were seeking to kill him, A report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And uh, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Don't you hate it? You're beating him to death. And then before he physically dies, you have to stop the beating. Because, you know, here come the cops. The police showed up. So the commander came and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains And began asking uh, who he was and what he had done. Okay. And uh, among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. (laughs) You know, similar to when Jesus was arrested, right? They couldn't keep their story straight. And it was really causing trouble because they wanted a conviction, but all the witnesses were contradicting one another. And so when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. All right, and so let's find a quieter venue. Let's settle down. Let's get some real answers, and let's uh, let's get away from the mob, because uh, the mobs—they're just about shouting and they have no facts. So when he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. The multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. All right, so Paul was uh, about to be brought to the barracks. He said to the commander. May I I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? (laughs) You know, you don't expect he's going to be speaking in Greek, but he speaks in Greek. So uh, he says, then you are not the Egyptian fellow, the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Wow, now there's a story. I want to hear what that's about. I want to watch that movie. Okay, Josephus talks about it um luke's talking about it here in the book of acts but uh that egyptian rascal uh, was not a greek speaker and so that rules out paul from being that guy and paul said i am a jew of tarsus in cilicia a citizen uh uh-oh okay a citizen of no insignificant city and i beg you allow me to speak to the people (laughs) and uh isn't this what he tried to do in Ephesus? Why does Paul think that if he just makes another good speech, he's going to solve everything? That kind of tends to be his uh, operating modus operandi. It usually gets him into bigger trouble. And uh, the Asiarchs in, uh, in, in Ephesus wouldn't let him. They kept him hidden away. They said, Paul, if you go to that marketplace, it's going to really explode. So they, they wouldn't let him. This Roman guy, though, doesn't know any better. So he says, okay, speak to the people. All right, so here we go again. So Paul stands on the stairs, motions to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in Hebrew. And so we have the defense in chapter twenty two, then so there's our setting, okay? He's on a staircase, he's speaking to him. He's at the entrance to the barracks. It's kind of like maybe if if you're in a hostile crowd, you want you want your your door right kind of behind you, <laughs> okay? Or maybe a hatch here somewhere, because uh, you know I I I don't want a hundred angry people between me and the and the door over there. I, I could probably run for that one maybe. Um, so here he is on the staircase, and he's giving this defense in Hebrew, and he's got a chance to testify now every time he does he 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 speaks the truth he gives his background and and he just makes matters worse all right and so it's before the crowd in hebrew here in chapter 22 and um, boy of all the details that we have here little glimpses little glimmers uh, in verse 3 we have some of his biography that we don't know from other uh, passages Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Oh, really? So he was born in Tarsus, but he was brought up in this city? Aha. Well, at what age? Can we guess? You know, was he five? Was he four? Was he was he twelve? Uh you know, how young you, I mean, I was born in Seattle, but you know, I didn't get to Texas till till I was twenty one. Um, you know, I mean, at what age in order to be brought up in this city, he had to have some childhood years here. Educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers. Did that start at eight? When did, when, when did he start kindergarten? The Gamaliel kindergarten. okay. Um, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And he starts to talk about his background, most of which m- many in this crowd know. They know it very well i persecuted so being zealous for god just as you all are today i persecuted this way to the death now we have a little clues of that because of stephen and back in chapter seven but this is far more than just one death of stephen binding and putting both men and women into prisons that's plural men and women how many as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. So Paul says, hey, my, my, my testimony can be corroborated here. They all know. The Sanhedrin knows. The high priest knows. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Now they may not want to admit that because those letters were illegal under Roman law. Paul had no jurisdiction to go grab people from one Roman province, bring them across province lines into Jerusalem, Uh, the the Roman authorities would would not take kindly to this. So you wonder what the the Roman guy eavesdropping on this. He may not know Hebrew, so it may not be a problem. Anyway, so in verses 6 and following then, we've got the Damascus Road event, certain details that are more in-depth than we have in chapter 9 um so enjoy those as you read down through that more information about ananias in verse 12 a man who was devout by the standard of the law well spoken of by all the jews who lived there and yet he's a disciple of jesus christ who's assigned to bring paul into the church age calls him brother saul all right so there's more there um the issue about being baptized and washing away your sins, we talk about when we talk about a Jewish uh, expectation of the kingdom versus crossing into the church age. There's a whole realm of doctrine there. Um, here's a detail I don't think we've seen elsewhere. Verse 17, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him, that's Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Well, you can go back to Acts chapter 9 and look for that, it's not there. We just have a very brief record of how he saw a few of the apostles, they put them on a boat and sent them to Tarsus. But here's more information. All right, and then of course the, the blood of Stephen. How many times does he mention the blood of Stephen? I think that haunted him for his whole apostolic career. All right. Well, Paul's speech is a verse 21, how do you think they received it? Not not well. <laughs> okay? Not well at all. Um verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement and then they raised their voices and said, "Away with such a fellow <laughs> from the earth. He should not be allowed to live." Right? If you want to eradicate something from the face of the earth, this is the kind of statement you make. Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and of throwing off their cloaks, tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Okay? I think the commander figured it out. This was a mistake. This was a mistake. You, know, you had a guy in custody. You should have just taken him inside in the first place get him away from the mob. He says, oh, excuse me, can I talk to them for a minute? Just say no, okay? Just say no. We're going to get this sorted out first. All right. So brings him into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging (laughs) so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. So there's different methods by which you can uh, acquire information. Uh, Some were legal under the Roman system that we don't have, wouldn't want uh, available to us today. Okay. Uh, although Paul is a Roman citizen. He's uh, he's exempt from this. He, uh, he has the right to say, oh, wait, can't scourge me until I'm convicted. He's not uh, eligible for scourging for uh, investigation purposes. And so, um, but, uh, you know, we have ways of making you talk, right? Like some old Hogan's Heroes episodes and comedies related to the nazis all right so uh they stretched him out with thongs and paul said to the centurion um who was standing by is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a roman and uncondemned Uh uh-oh okay oops we've got to stop what we're doing here and uh, so the centurion heard this went to the commander said this man's a roman citizen what are we doing and um more details, this is kind of curious too. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said yes. And Warren had this question a couple of weeks ago. How do you prove that? You know, any schmuck can come along and say, Well, I'm a Roman, don't scourge me. So how do you prove that? Do you have your ID card? Do you have a, a driver's license issued from you know the Roman DMV? What do you what do you have? see and how do you validate this claim and how how are the records searched? Well, it's going to take time they can't just shoot off an email and get a get a response back from the but they can get records romans were meticulous record keepers all right uh so yes i'm a citizen verse 27 the commander answered well i acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money see he himself was naturalized he himself was not born a roman citizen paul said i was actually born a citizen See, there's a difference between birthright citizenship and naturalized citizenship. All right. Born a citizen. Wow. So Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. His parents were Pharisees. They were also citizens because Paul was born a citizen. We got some background here on Paul's biography that we just get in little glimpses and pieces here and there that we don't have in, in a standard narration that maybe we, we might want. So uh, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. Uh-oh. All right. So uh, on the next day then, wishing to know for certain why he'd been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble, brought Paul down and set them, set him before them. Again, all right. Maybe not the smartest thing. Okay. But at least it's a controlled setting. At least it's indoors. At least it's on his terms. It's in his facility with his soldiers. Bring the Sanhedrin in. Bring the chief priests in. But then he makes that same mistake. He lets Paul open his mouth. <laughs> all right, Paul, talk to these guys. Let's find out why they want you dead. And Paul's just rubbing his hands and saying, all right, <laughs> here we go. This will work. Okay. you think every time he thinks it's going to work. And so we have the council then in chapter 23. So if you're memorizing chapter titles, you know, Paul before the mob, Paul before the council, Paul before Felix, Paul before Festus, Paul before Agrippa, you can, you can kind of think your way through the order of his different defenses. Even if perhaps we uh, get confused in, in some of these. All right, Um, so the council is chapter 23, and um, it does not go well. Uh, In verse 6, let's see, yeah, the high priest strikes him, and then... um, verse 6 perceiving that one group were sadducees the other group was pharisees paul began crying out to the council brethren i am a pharisee a son of pharisees i am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead and he and he said this there occurred a dissension between pharisees and sadducees and the assembly was divided so this bothers me why why does he do this what's he trying to accomplish you know if you're if you're if you're addressing a group and you want your information to go out there. And you notice that in your group you've got some uh, Calvinists and some Arminians, you know. Ooh. Do you want to just stop what you're doing and launch into something on predestination? I mean, do you wanna do you wanna pick a fight and, and get one group mad at the other group? Because you know, you know what, dis- what, what divides them, right? or you're preaching a sermon and then you realize man I got some republicans here I got some democrats here and and you can just start a fight quicker than anything about just pick a pick an issue the resurrection was a huge issue between pharisees and sadducées right cuz the uh, sadducées say that there is no resurrection that's why they're sad you see I know it's old. You've heard it a hundred times, but it's still funny every time. So there occurred a great uproar. It, it seems that Paul did this deliberately. Well, why? What's he What's he trying to escape here? And I, and I think it's because things were, were going bad uh, in verse five and uh, the hostility with the high priest. Paul said, well, I didn't know that was him. <laughs> um, anyway. It's a curious chapter to me. So uh, great dissension. And in verse nine, some of the scribes and Pharisee uh, stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Okay, Uh, they they agreed with his theology. He said, hey, he's one of us. He was trained as a Pharisee. We agree. Maybe a spirit or an angel spoke to him. Sadducees don't believe in those either. So a great dissension was developing and the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. See, this commander is just making one bad choice after another after another. So he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. So on the night, immediately following the Lord, stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also and this is i think this is a part of the lord getting paul's attention saying all right now paul i let you run to jerusalem but overruling will of god here you're going to rome which is where you should have gone in the first place so uh for the rest of chapter 23 they're trying to kill him and um more than 40 that formed this plot and uh other little clues look at verse 16 holy smokes where'd that come from the son of Paul's sister? Didn't know Paul had a sister. They didn't know he had a sister? Didn't know she had a son? Who is this guy? Um, heard of their ambush. He came and entered the barracks and told Paul. So you get a, a helpful nephew there that shows up and tells you about this ambush that's been plotted. And uh, anyway, so then he gets moved to Caesarea. And so in verse 23 and following, um Two of the centurions said, get 200 soldiers ready. (laughs) What an escort, you know, what a privilege. And every soldier he's exposed to is is another opportunity to to have greater exposure to the gospel. He's going to talk about in Philippians how the whole praetorian guard was exposed to the gospel because of of his imprisonment. 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Uh, They were to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And so uh, we have uh, a letter then that he's writing. So look, here's a letter-writing ministry. Well, no, this isn't Paul. This is Claudius Lysias, the most most excellent Governor Felix greetings. All right, so there we are. Um, As far as the rest of these trials go, I think we can, there are other glimpses and other clues before Felix, before Festus, um, their wives, before Agrippa, Oh, um, goodness. And it's interesting, in all of these processes, everyone keeps declaring that he's innocent. There, there's nothing worthy of death. What's he done? You know, I mean, you get two years into a trial and the judge can't figure out what the charges are. That's, that's not good, okay? I mean, that's a, that's a mistrial waiting to happen. How do, you, how do you have a trial when you can't even figure out what the charges are? I mean, where's the indictment? Where's the, where's the On what basis is there even a trial happening? Okay. Well, he's obviously a bad fellow. We wouldn't bring you here. Well, you, you need more than that. You need more than the fact that he's a bad guy. What did he do? What's he guilty of? What's the what's the charge? What's the evidence? There's a there's a right way and a wrong way to approach all of this. All right. Now, um, this two-year house arrest. Oh no, wait. This is uh, I got ahead of myself on my slide here. So, what did he do during the the two years in prison? Did he write a prison epistle two, three, or four? Can we assign Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, or Philemon to this period of time? Perhaps. Perhaps not. So when he gets to Rome then, when he gets to Rome, after all of these uh, chapters here, let's get through the end and we get him on a boat. So in chapter 7, he's sent to Rome. There's really no need for that. The end of chapter 26, um, Agrippa's kind of beside himself. He says, why are we sending him to Rome? This is going to be kind of stupid. We could just release him now, but he appealed to Caesar. So we can't just let him go. We have to send him to Rome. He's not done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So now they're kind of stuck. Well, put him on a boat, send him to Caesar. So uh, we've already looked at these early verses here and how they uh, got on the different ships and how they changed their ship. And in Myra, and then um, they're on the way to Italy. As far as the rest of this goes, uh, verse 7 of chapter 27, uh, when he had sailed uh, slowly for a good many days, with difficulty, he arrived off, uh, I don't know how to pronounce, Cnidus. Since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called the Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And when considerable time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous. Since even the the uh, fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. You know, there's just certain times of the year you don't want to be in that part of the Mediterranean. So here's the, uh, here's the map, and uh, you see the route that they're taking. Although this line is probably too faint for you to see from a far distance back there, but that's the route they're going. You recall, I've, I've said this several times, at different times of the year, no one ever tried to sail through here, no one ever tried to sail through here. They would take refuge in these havens and just wait it out, wait for those winds to end. And, and typically it was much safer just to sail into Corinth, cart the uh, goods on, uh, across the isthmus, and then sail out this way to, uh, to Italy. That's, that shouldn't be land right there, that should be water. And they could sail out this way to Italy but they're going to get shipwrecked at Malta all right and um so Paul says to them in verse 10 and here he is again Paul solves everything with a speech men (laughs) I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and with great loss Not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Remember, Paul's been shipwrecked already three times. He wrote that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He has spent a night and a day, He spent in the deep. And um, he knows what he's talking about with respect to shipwrecks. He's about to have his fourth one. I'm in chapter 27 and verse 10. He's on his way to Rome. And, uh, the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. (laughs) So the Roman here, he's going to listen to the professional sailors and this kooky preacher, you know, he's heard him before. And every time he preaches, he just gets people mad. And, uh, so he's more persuaded by what the pilot and the captain of the ship were saying. So because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, and uh, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there. Well, there you go. Majority is always right. We take a vote, and that's what we're going to do. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there, uh, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor, began sailing for Crete, close inshore and they said okay we can do this we'll make it we can make it well no they, they couldn't make it and Paul told them they couldn't make it but they didn't listen to Paul so before very long they rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uroquillo and when the ship was caught in it they could not face the wind and we gave way to it let ourselves be driven along and so anyway it's a description here of being tossed around and jettisoning cargo Everything they're doing, trying to uh, not hit rocks and trying not to die. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And so they, uh, verse 21, went a long time without food. Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, (laughs) here he is again, right? Because it's worked so well for him every other time time for another speech. I told you so. You ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and this loss. Yet now I urge you, keep up your courage. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of God, the angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar." So God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. All right, so uh, we'll deal with this. He gets shipwrecked on Malta and uh, we'll deal with this on Wednesday, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this study. I thank you for uh, all these recent classes. There's so many details and our heads are spinning. uh, But Father, uh, so many of these things are, uh, are vital. They're background to the prison epistles and, uh, and I pray that you would help us to keep all the information straight and sorted out. I thank you for, uh, even in the midst of the worst month of the year, giving me a voice to get through this hour. Thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.